Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that we recorded this prior to the killing of Dante Wright in Minnesota and before the footage of the violent confrontation of Lieutenant Nazario was released. Due to the timing of this recording, we don't discuss these two incidents of police brutality, even though they would have been very relevant to our discussion here. Black Lives Matter. Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Aaron. And I'm Damien. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those of you new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want interdependent study to be a space where we are always learning with one another. And so Damien is up this week. So what are you bringing to the table today? All right. So today I've brought a documentary called Baltimore Rising to the table, which is all about the days, weeks and months following the death of Freddie Gray in Baltimore City. Um, This documentary actually came out back in 2017, but neither of us had seen it before. So I'm glad we were finally able to do that. And if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, it is currently airing on HBO. That's how we both watched it. So you can check it out there. Um, I mentioned this last week, but the reason we wanted to talk about this documentary this month is because Freddie Gray was arrested by the Baltimore Police Department on April 12th, 2015, and suffered a spinal cord injury while in their custody. And then he tragically died seven days later. And uh, I think it's probably very clear to everyone listening that we believe that Black Lives Matter. And we believe that it is a mighty shame. And I'm, I'm not even sure that that's strong enough of a way to describe it. Um, it's, a, it's a mighty shame that black men like Freddie Gray are known to us because of their tragic deaths at the hands of the police. Mm-hmm. And so six years to the month later, we thought it fitting to talk about Freddie Gray and this documentary being on the table is is our way to do that. Um, And so I started to say this earlier, but the Baltimore Rising documentary follows the city of Baltimore and activists and police officers and, and community leaders in the wake of Freddie Gray's death in police custody and actually takes us all the way to one year after his death. And so there's a lot in this documentary. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm glad that we're able to talk about it here on the, the podcast. And, and Aaron actually started watching it before I did. And I think you G-chatted me mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. You, you reached out and you, you said it's really good, uh, but it's a lot. Uh, so I'm curious what stood out to you? Where, where do you want to start? Yeah, it's definitely a lot. Um, I, and I had to stop watching it a few times mm. um, just to get up and walk around the house for a minute. And, you know, even when I finished watching it the first time, um, I didn't know what I wanted to talk about here. Yeah. I was like, there's there's so many different pieces of it. You know, there's also things that I think people um, like there's personal stories um, that follow some of the people involved. And I'm like, I don't know that I really want to like talk about those things here and, and like sit, <laughs> sit my little um, space here and like analyze people's personal decisions. Right. Right. So, but there, there's a lot of other things to talk about. And so it, it took a little while to sort of process that, I think. Um, but I do want to start with, 
Um, it is directed by uh, Sanja Sohn, yes, um, who uh, played Kima Griggs on The Wire. Um, so I just I, I thought I, I hadn't thought about mentioning that yet, and I was like, oh, we should we should mention that. Absolutely, um, great show. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so. Uh, it starts the the documentary starts with as you said a recap kind of um, of Freddie Gray's death um, and then it moves through like community response um, t- in the kind of immediate aftermath and then explores some different ways that people are trying to work within their community um, so there's uh, Michaela Gilliam Price and Kwame Rose are kind of one thread and then there's Jannard Barr uh, and his work with some of the police department leadership. Uh, and then it follows organization leaders from um, leaders for a beautiful struggle or of a beautiful struggle, sorry, um, through their advocacy to change the law enforcement bill of rights here in Maryland. Um, so there's there's a lot here. There's a lot of different pieces, um, and it feels like there's trying to show it's trying to show that there are many different ways that Baltimore was responding not only to the death of Freddie Gray. Uh, but to the conditions in which so many black people in Baltimore have been put in through essentially disinvestment in the black community in Baltimore. Yes. Um, and so um, I think there's this moment back in the opening moment of the uh, documentary, uh, opening parts of the documentary where a city council person, uh, Carl Stokes, um, was telling the story about walking through a neighborhood um, after the uprising and with a reporter and the reporter said something to the effect of, um, man, that riot really did a number on the city, didn't it? He's looking around the block and there's um, boarded up abandoned houses and stuff. Um, and so Carl Stokes said, look again, <laughs> the boards that you see on these windows are not new. They've been up at least 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he said the riot didn't turn up this community. The conditions of the community caused the uprising that we had. Yeah. And I think that this documentary starts to um, pull at some of those threads to show what those conditions are. Um, And I think some of the work that people are doing in the documentary are trying to um, create real changes to those those conditions of the community. Yeah, absolutely. I I love that that's how it started. Um, And I definitely want to uh, spend some time talking about this idea of conditions, uh, because that stood out to me too. And I think it's also something that we've talked about uh, here on the show before. Um, But yeah, I think that was a really um, impactful way to sort of start this documentary. Um, So I appreciated that. I I, I think I, I appreciated this documentary and so much of it for, for lots of reasons. Um, but I, but like you said, it was a difficult watch, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and like you just mentioned, I think the documentary did a good job in walking us through everything that took place in the year after Freddie Gray was arrested, both in terms of providing this timeline of events that took place as it related to the case, um, but also in showcasing sort of everyone's reactions to it for, for, for lack of a better word. And so I actually want to share a bit about the timeline of events of the documentary, uh, that it walked us through because I think it's important. Um, right. And it's sort of about in in some ways, uh, Freddie Gray's legacy. Um, 
but I also want to make sure that we're all on the same page because I, I know some people don't always get to watch these things that we talk right. about on the table. And so, so shortly after the documentary begins, we are shown footage of the actual arrest of, at the time, 25-year-old Freddie Gray um, in the Gilmore, housing, uh, Gilmore Homes housing projects of Baltimore, again, on April 12, 2015. And we hear about and see parts of how he suffered this spinal cord injury at the hands of the police at the time of his arrest. Um, and then we learn that he, you know, tragically dies in police custody on April 19th. And then the documentary shifts and shows us footage from his actual funeral, uh, which took place on April 27th. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we see one week later, the state's attorney at the time, Marilyn Mosby, you know, she holds her press conference to announce that they were going to formally charge the six officers involved in his arrest. And I remember, I think right after they showed that press conference, um, someone says, I don't know if it's the narrator or if it's, you know, someone who's featured talked about how there was jubilation in the streets, or it might've been a, a, a newscast that they were sort of, uh, yeah. that they showed, like there were jubilation in the streets uh, because folks felt like we got it, like it's gonna happen, we're gonna get, you know, justice for for Freddie. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, throughout the rest of the documentary, we we see and hear pieces of the trials of four of those police officers uh, and the, the outcomes of those trials uh, leading up to almost the end of the film where we watch and we see Marilyn Mosby again in her press conference, you know, where she's announcing that her office was declining to file, file charges on the remaining officers and declining to retry the first case that was declared a mistrial. And so, you know, in thinking about all that, like all of that alone was a lot. Um, yeah. And right? that that part of it moves so quickly. Too. Yeah. Like um, we get to that point where it just felt very, that part of it felt very quick. It was rapid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, that's a good point. Right. So, you know, to me, all of that felt like a lot, um, both to watch in this documentary, but also to be reminded of what I remember from it when it happened six years ago. Mm-hmm. Like in so many ways, watching this documentary, watching this documentary brought me right back to 2015. Like, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've shared here before, I'm from Baltimore. I'm actually from the county, not the city, but you know, I do have family that live in the city and, and I can vividly remember the feelings I had around this black man, this young black man dying at the hands of the police and then in watching the protests and the uprising happening in the city, like I can, I can remember where I was and, and watching that on the TV and, you know, my family texting back and forth to try to, you know, make sure we were all safe and, um, and, you know, just kind of watching this place that we are from, uh, watch it all unfold and, and really understanding it. Right. Um, and I think, this is one of the things that the documentary shows us, as you mentioned, is the the conditions of the city and the and the community really collide with this horrific death of Freddie. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Right. Like that was that was too much. And and I felt it and understood it and I still feel it and understand it. Um, and I think one of the other things I think this documentary also does 
in between all of those moments that I just talked about is show us the reactions of Baltimore City and its residents and the reactions of, you know, the police department and the reactions and work of the activists, both young and old, who, mm-hmm. who really did some incredible work in fighting for justice. And I think that those are truly some of the most compelling pieces of this documentary, right? Yeah, I think those responses are super um, interesting, compelling um, pieces of the story. Um, I think, I mean, really, it is the story, uh, the way that this documentary is um, sort of filmed and, and edited together. Like, it's it's the story of, of these folks finding ways to respond, um, both to the moment that they're in, but also, like, the conditions overall. Yeah. Um, so I think... Um, yeah, it's people who are throwing their whole selves into the effort to find justice. Um, and whether that's in the short term, um, you know, so-called short term about the trials, or it's more long term and finding ways to address issues in the community um, or trying to find, you know, uh, justice and policy change. Yeah. Um, that are That's more like longer term and futuristic um, thinking. Um, you know, I think some of the work that uh, Jannard Barr, um, who is in the documentary and does um, sort of drug abuse, like intake placement for, um, for treatment. Um, I think some of the work he was doing in, you know, community organizing was super interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's not the work that I would necessarily find myself aligned with all the time. Mm. Right. Like the outreach to the police department and the kind of the community football game that he helps put together feels like to me, um, an opportunity for PR stunt for the police instead of addressing like real changes in the department of policing. Um, you know, and so that's, that's my outsider take, right? Like hundred yeah. percent outsider. But I think it also seemed to hold some meaning for the, for the right community members who are there playing uh, with it. So I'm like, I'm not trying to bring that down all the way, but yeah. yeah Cause nice I think that of, there were yeah. moments where they talked about like even the sort of the, the, the fellas playing we're talking about. Um, and I think even, uh, Barr talked about this, about sort of, you know, they want to play sports. They enjoy mm-hmm. playing sports, right? Mm-hmm. And so for them, it was an easy sort of way to to have some kind of connection with the police that isn't what we know actually happens, right? And and the experience that they have all had. Um, so, so I agree. I can see how for the police department, it's probably, and it probably was a spin for them uh, and a right. PR stunt for them, but I think it did hold some meaning. Um, mm-hmm for for the community and for the folks playing yeah um i think yeah so i think it's it's hard to balance because it's like you know what what's what meaning does it hold does it change long-term relationships yeah um or is it is it just like sort of we have this moment where we're gonna like play play a game together which is cool um and we're gonna have this moment um yeah so now what and so i think that's kind of where I was sitting with it, yes. um, is, um, you know, I'm not trying to like belittle it all the way. Um, but also like, you know, longer term, what does it mean? Like, is it leading to something else? And then yeah, sure. Like let's, let's do those, those yeah. kind of things. But, yeah. um, so, but some of the other work that he's doing is also super interesting. Um, so it talks about trying to get a jobs training program up and running much later in the film. Um, and so that's a cool way to try to change, um, or interesting, I shouldn't really say cool, but it's it's a very um, community focused way, I think, to try to change the actual experiences of people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and then shifting focus a little bit and thinking about the some of the people from uh, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle going to Maryland State Legislature uh, later in the film to advocate for community oversight of the police and changes to the law enforcement bill of rights that we have in Maryland. Um, so yeah, I, there's, and you know, those are just two kinds of threads. Um, but seeing all the ways that people are trying to make change is a really great part of this documentary. Um, and that people are doing it in a variety of ways from, you know, Jannar Barr to people and, and leaders of a beautiful struggle. And so, um, yeah, I think that's the, that's really great part of this, this documentary. Absolutely. Yeah. And it sort of shows the idea that there are, many ways to make change happen, right? And so you yeah. have to sort of pursue what you're passionate about and really sort of, um, but I think at the at the, at the the core of it for everybody is this idea of, as we talked about, changing those conditions, right? Like yeah. what, are, what work are we doing to change the conditions uh, for our community, right? And so uh, whether like, as you said, a short-term or long-term uh, sort of strategies, um, we get to see all of that uh, mm-hmm. through this documentary. And so uh, yes, another thing I appreciate it too. Um, one of the other things I think I enjoyed a lot about this documentary was how it showed us the the power of voice and the the power of protest. You know, there were so many snippets of folks from Baltimore City that were interviewed for this documentary and and who were shown participating in, in protests and and all of these folks that we get to see are really raw and and vulnerable and real, right? Like, you know they're in the moment and they're reacting to their experience and, and what happened with Freddie. And it, to me, that's really powerful um, to see and to hear, um, you know, and, and on top of that, the documentary also sort of in, in between shots and in between moments sort of cuts to and shows us some of the posters and the signs that were posted up through the city after Freddie Gray died. And, and they were really moving too. you know, one example was from pretty early on in the documentary, I think where, uh, there were these homemade signs that were posted up and one of them read lynching still exists and white people use bullets and laws to lynch black people legally. And next to it was another sign that said Freddie Gray, victim of Baltimore City police brutality. And, you know, like I said, that was very early on in the documentary. So it doesn't take us long to really sort of see it and feel it right, like to see and feel what and how this community, and, and I think so many folks beyond it, were, were thinking and feeling in that moment and in reaction to uh, what had just taken place with Freddie and, and even beyond that with the, the uprising. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we also get to watch interviews of folks from Baltimore and, and so many of those were really compelling too and, and, and really, again, just raw, right? Like there was an interview of a, of a black woman and, you know, she said a black man don't have nothing in this world. Right. And there was a, there was also an older black man who said, you know, stop making us scared of ISIS when we need to be scared of our own judicial system. And I, you know, I was in my, in my apartment, just like hollering, Um, (laughs) you know, and, and to that point, Later on in the documentary, I think there was, I think this was after the mistrial um, was declared for that, for the first police officer who was, who was tried. Um, There was an activist interviewed who said, and I'm going to quote here, he said, we need to focus on the structural changes to the system in order to prevent these types of trials from having to happen in the first place. And that's it, right? Like, yeah. uh, as the kids say, that's the tweet. Um, <laughs> you know, we we need structural changes because we see in a case like this one that none of those police officers were actually convicted. And Freddie Gray 
became, unfortunately, just one soul in a very long list at, at, at this point, which is just, you know, infuriating to, to say the least. Um, and, you know, as I say this to you, I'm actually thinking about sort of this idea of structural changes. Like it, it reminds me of conversations that you and I have had before, both on this podcast and outside of it, around what's really needed. And I think we both agree and we've said loud and clear here that that's abolition. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, again, I, I loved how this documentary really showcased the the power of voice and, and the power of protest. And it was incredible to see the journeys and the work of activists like uh, the ones you've already mentioned. You know, you talked about Michaela Gilliam Price and Kwame Rose and, and Shadow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and all that they did to 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 mobilize the folks around them. You know, I think uh, Barr really did a lot of work to protect the folks around him and his community, um, and and all of them did all of this work to to really fight for justice, um, and so all of that was great. And 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 personally, you know, being from there, like I and I know I'm not alone in this. You know, I think there was so much negative media attention given to Baltimore when all of this was happening in real time. You know, there was so much commentary around, and and there is in in all riots to some degree, right? But, but the, you know, this was major, um, you know, around the uprising and the property damage, you know, that CVS being burned or Walgreens, oh, I can't, one of those stores, um, and, and the property damage that took place. And and so I, I, I appreciated that this documentary decided to focus more on the activists, right? And the incredible work that they were doing and the, the actual people who live in the city, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... Um and definitely to echo what you were talking about earlier with the smaller interviews or clips, a lot of those things stuck out to me as like um, as memorable pieces of this uh, story. But I, so one in particular was the lawyer from of the Gray family, okay. um, Billy Murphy. Um, so he talked about some of the history, I think, from his perspective in Baltimore City. Um, So he talked about there was this kind of onward and upward feeling about Baltimore and black families in the city. He talked about how police knew the community because they were on foot. So they had to interact with people. Um, So they knew who the they yeah they knew who the quote unquote good people were and who the bad people were. Um, And then he talked about how the introduction of the squad car um, fundamentally changed the whole interaction um, between police officers in the community. And so now police officers are in their cars and they're just traveling from hotspot to hotspot. Um, and so they didn't develop the same relationships with the community. Um, and so I'm not, that, that stuck out to me because I think fundamentally, like there's a lot of truth to that. Like Absolutely. the introduction of the squad car completely changed the way that policing works uh, in the country. Um, you know, in this particular instance, we're talking about Baltimore city. But, um, I also think that maybe there's a bit of a rosy view of Mm. police back then. Right. Like I think that, that, um, yeah, they knew the community, but you know, it doesn't mean that brutality wasn't still a thing. Um, and so that, that was one piece of it that, that I, I felt in it as I listened to that. And then the other piece of it, I think it continues this like binary narrative of good and bad people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the cops back in the day allegedly knew who the good people were, but like, what does that actually kind of mean? Does it mean that they knew which 
black people were okay to harass mm. um, in the neighborhood because they're the so-called bad ones um, and which ones they should leave alone because the, they're the so-called good ones. Um, and so that, that also felt like, um, I don't know if it, it felt like uncomfortable to me, like we're participating in yeah. or we're like, you know, and I don't think he's trying to make that argument necessarily, but it felt like, well, this is, this is, that's a piece of the narrative that we don't necessarily challenge when we hear it is like, there are good people and there are bad people. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that, that is part of, I think for me unpacking, um, you know, the narratives and the beliefs and the invisible values of things around us. Um, and I, I felt that and I heard that in that, in that little story from him. Um, so yeah, I wanted to like unpack that a little bit too. Yeah. That's a word, uh, for sure. You know, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I can see that for sure. And I think, um, you talked about sort of the value we, we, we give things. I think that also, um, and, and we talked about this when we think about abolition, right? That, that also adds or lends itself to adding value to the police, right? And historically mm -hmm. speaking, right? Like if he has this sort of rosy view of what uh, the police were back, and I think he was talking about sort of the 60s um, mm -hmm. compared to what was happening now, right? Like I think in our in both of our humble opinions, right? There, there is no value, uh, especially when um, this brutality exists, right? Yep. Um, so yeah, no, I, I appreciate that good word. Um, and you sharing it here. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that really stood out to me in this documentary actually connects to our episode where we talked about the Washington Post editorial board piece on yes. reimagining public safety. And, and you said yes, so I'm sure you made this connection too. I can hear it. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, you mentioned how the documentary opens with Carl Stokes talking about, you know, his conversation with that reporter and and, you know, about how it wasn't the riot that tore up the community. It was the condition of the community that caused the uprising. And and I agree with you that Carl and that statement really set the stage for the conversation that needed to be had and and continues to happen um, about the conditions in Baltimore and cities like it for the people who live in them yep. and and how those conditions lead to what we saw happen in Baltimore City in the aftermath of Freddie. And I think there were a couple of other scenes that spoke to this idea of the conditions in cities like Baltimore and this broader topic of, of public safety. You know, the first was an interview with Lieutenant Colonel Melvin Russell, who at the time was the chief of the Baltimore Police Department's Community Collaboration Division. And, and in it, he flat out says that Baltimore is underserved and over-policed mm -hmm. and that Freddie Gray wasn't the cause of the uprising, but instead the straw that broke the camel's back after decades of the city and its residents, uh, you know, crying out. And, you know, I, I appreciate that moment, but also I will say that one issue that I had with that interview uh, and with Lieutenant Russell, um, there was a moment or a part of it where he was sort of driving through the city and he was riding through the neighborhood where, where the Freddie Gray incident took place. And he said something to the effect of, this is where Freddie Gray got arrested. And I had to, I paused the television and I just yelled, no, this is where y'all killed him. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, there's that. And I guess I'm showing my cards about how I feel about that. Um, but so there was that, but towards the end of the documentary, we also hear from 
the police commissioner, Kevin Davis, um, who talked about how law enforcement and police departments around the country, you know, shoulder all of the woes of society and how we can't rely on them to fix everything, you know, and he was sort of, you know, um, pushing us to think about how instead really our society needs to take a broader look at public safety and the role that things like housing and employment and education play in public safety, you know, and he's not wrong, right? Like, um, and it's, and it certainly connects to what we've, we, we've talked about here. Um, and so to me, it was fascinating on one hand to see the connections between what the council member and the Lieutenant and the commissioner said about public safety and what we've talked about in that episode around needing to reimagine public safety. But I think on the other hand, I was also reminded that, you know, this documentary is about events that happened back in 2015 and 2016. Yep. And here we are and it's 2021 and we're still grappling with this conversation and the need to reimagine public safety. Right. And so I think there's to me that, it sort of lit this fire in me around how this work and, and what we're talking about here um, and, and certainly abolition, but all the pieces of um, social justice and collective liberation that we talk about here on this show, it, 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 it lit a fire in me and a spark in me, but also reminded me of why we're doing this and why it matters mm-hmm. to us. Um, and, and like, don't even get me started on that police accountability bill part that you you talked about a little bit ago and yeah. you know because we've talked about this before too that you know police unions and and police accountability are problems right and and are a major part of the work that needs to happen um when we think about reimagining public safety so i i i just appreciated and 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 saw great sort of parallels between um this documentary and, and our conversation about uh, reimagining public safety that i sort of wanted to to share with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, back to your question, uh, Kevin Davis is not wrong. Yeah. Um, I think he made some interesting points actually throughout the documentary, um, especially when he was talking about how the city, um, he was meeting with some folks uh, in the community. He was talking about how the city's not doing a good job managing expectations for the trials, mm. which on one hand, I'm like, well, y- you work for the city, right? Um, and so, but I think the bigger point that he was making is that, you know, broadly, the police are the most public faces of local government for people. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that's for good or for bad. And I think that, you know, his point is that police are, are doing, having to do too many things. Right. Um, so as you mentioned, we talk about a couple of weeks ago, you know, there, like I said, was, and there is too much that we ask of police for public safety. They can't do it all. Um, I think there are some way more effective models for de-escalation, for violence prevention, other forms of public safety mm-hmm. than someone who is armed for a battle showing up, right? Um, and so I, I also think about, um, at one point, Jannar Barr, also known as Shadow, mm-hmm. you mentioned. Um, he's talking to um, the commissioner, Kevin Davis, about, um, well, you know, we got 7,000 people and 300 jobs. Yes. And so... You know how do we how do we rectify those things? And thinking about that too as public safety, mm-hmm. um, I think it is is part of a bigger kind of broadening of of what public safety means um, too. And so you know shifting gears a little bit um, because there's other moment I wanted to talk about that involved Detective Donnell Taylor, oh, yes. um, who is the lead investigator in the prosecution of those officers who are involved in Freddie Gray's death. Um, so she starts 
running through the building in this moment, trying to find a TV to listen to the not guilty verdict come through once it's handed down. Yeah. Um, And she like starts celebrating. Yeah. Um, And it just felt very strange to me. It felt like surreal. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, how am I supposed to trust a system in which the person who was in charge of investigating the death of this man celebrates when one of the people who was involved in that death is let off the hook? Yeah. I mean, the short answer is that we can't trust that system. Um, But you know, that's also how the system is supposed to work and is designed to work. It's, it's working according to design. Yeah. It was, that was a, that was a, there was so much about this that were, that was difficult to get through. And a lot of moments where it was like, you know, woof, this was a lot, but that moment in particular was really, um, challenging and, and difficult to sort of watch. And, um, you know, because you're right. I think there is no, um, way to justify that right and and it was it was hard to sort of watch her celebrate um a police officer get off on killing this this young man um Mm -hmm. and you know i think she talks about how you know through her investigation right and her team's investigation that it was a freak accident i think is what yeah um you know sort of their determination and and you know she acknowledges that they're could have been more that they did right and in, in ways in which they could have kept him safe and and yada 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 but to, to to me quite frankly that's just all bullshit um and you know i don't accept it um because this young man is dead um mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. we saw footage of how they arrested him and how they slammed him and how they you know and 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 heard the testimony of them you know putting him in that police vehicle right and and there just is no excuse for that um, so I, I, am glad you brought that up. Uh, you know, again, difficult. Um, but that was a, that was a hard part of this documentary for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's shift over to application. Um, you know, when I was thinking about application of this documentary, I, I couldn't help but think of Kwame Rose, who, mm-hmm. as we've mentioned, was one of the activists featured in this documentary. And, we see that Kwame gets arrested multiple times as he's participating in protests. And it just made me think about the importance of knowing your rights and being vigilant and careful when you're out in these streets protesting. And so I wanted to encourage folks to be sure to do their homework if they decide to participate in a protest. And there are lots of great resources out there that sort of describe our First Amendment rights uh, regarding protesting and also share tips for how to stay safe when you protest. And so I wanted to highlight a couple of them. One is the ACLU, which has a great webpage on protesters' rights, including from the perspective of if you are organizing a protest, um, but also if you are just participating in a protest, um, and also if you get arrested uh, when you're participating in a protest. Um, The other resource is Amnesty International, which has some great uh, resources on how to stay safe in a protest, including what to bring with you, what not to bring with you, what to wear, uh, what to do if you're injured or you're tear gassed and and so much more. I think this was it looked familiar to me when we went out last summer, um, you know, and we you, you, you did a great job in preparing us for what we should bring with us in our book bags, what we needed to keep at home, um, all that good stuff. So um, really, really good resources. Wanted to highlight them. And, and I know that there are more out there, but I, I think it's important um, and a part of 
what this documentary does so well um, is it inspires activism and protesting. So um, and and might bring that up for folks later. So it's an important um, thing to really be safe as possible if you're out in these streets doing that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think knowing your rights and having a plan for showing up to demonstrations is a great piece of homework. Um, it's actually, I think it's a piece of what they were talking about when they do a civil disobedience um, training that um, Michaela is helping lead. Yep. Um, but I think, you know, especially thinking about as we move into this summer, I think there's going to be some more movement work happening. Mm. Um, and so I think a piece of a piece of this is to find ways to support organizations who are doing good work that you appreciate. So um, I w- wanted to highlight the Dream Defenders in Florida who are currently um, uh, organizing against a law that has been proposed by the governor in Florida, Ron DeSantis. Um, and so honestly, this, this, uh, this bill is pretty terrifying. Mm. Um, it increases potential charges for people taking direct action, like shutting down a highway, um, and tries to ban people from confronting public figures in public. So like at a restaurant or something, um, they also included this neat little organized crime charge that they mm. can throw on anybody who organizes or funds a so-called violent or disorderly assembly. So the way that I read that in my non-lawyer training, no legal training whatsoever mind, so preface that this isn't official law analysis, is that, so let's say I I'd send 25 bucks to somebody who is helping organize um, a protest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did I just fund something and so now wow. i can have a federal organized crime charge um potentially tagged on, maybe not federal a felony sorry yeah. i meant to say felony felony, felony sense, organized yeah. crime charge put on me because i sent somebody 25 bucks to buy you know water and whatever else they might Jeez. need um so that's another piece of this that i think is is super um, dangerous and expands the ability for law enforcement and, um, you know, politicians mm-hmm. to shut down speech um, that they don't agree with. Um, and they're casing it in this anti-riot kind of language. Um, of course. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I mean, essentially it feels like, and it looks like to me that they'll be able to declare anything with more than seven people, a disorderly assembly, um, so arrests will go up. Now, there might be conditions and stuff to that. But, um, you know, in the documentary, we see, as you mentioned, Kwame Rose get arrested for nothing. Nothing. Right. Like nothing. Um, you know, maybe talking back to somebody, but, you know, ultimately like nothing. Um, right. Like there's a joke from one of his colleagues in the, in the documentary is like, you seem to not remember that you got arrested for telling people to stay on the sidewalk. Yeah. Um, because that's what he was doing. in in one of the scenes is like, Hey, stay on the sidewalk so that we're, you know, we're, we're good here. Um, so yeah, I think this will be a, a cudgel used by law enforcement and politicians to shut down speech that they don't like. Um, so car- charges and criminal records will go up. Um, which means like, you know, uh, eventually speech will be repressed um, and suppressed. So, yeah. Good. All right. So the Dream Defenders in Florida are definitely a great organization to be looking into and, and supporting. I'm, I'm glad you brought up what's 
going on in Florida because woof, that's wow. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you're right. You make a good point that I think as it gets nicer out, we're going to see uh, more folks out in these streets, which I'm I love and I'm all for. But um, sort of as I mentioned in in relation to what you said, I think we all need to be careful about what we're doing. Um, all right, so let's transition and talk about homework. Um, you know, something that I was reminded of in watching this documentary was the fact that the Justice Department actually released a report on the Baltimore Police Department in the aftermath of Freddie Gray's murder. And it was a scathing report that found routine and rampant discrimination towards black people and use of excessive force mm-hmm. and a lack of proper accountability for misconduct by police officers. And the Justice Department ultimately mandated federal oversight of the Baltimore Police Department. And there's a part of the documentary where we see uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, uh, who at the time was the president of the NAACP Legal Fund and edu- Legal Defense and Education Fund, excuse me. And what she shares is that she called it one of the worst Justice Department reports she had ever read um, in terms of what it revealed about sort of the subject, which yep. was the Baltimore Police Department mm-hmm. uh, and its conduct. And that's obviously quite a statement, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'll be honest, I, I, I know that I heard about that report when it first came out, but I but I never read it. And so while I think I've I've gotten better, I've certainly gotten better over this about this um over the years as I've become more engaged in this work, you know, my homework is to go back and read that report mm. and, and, and real talk. That's partly because now I'm just curious about it and that we've watched this documentary and it's back yeah. sort of in the forefront of my mind and it's all fresh again. But I also think it's just good practice for all of us to read reports like this one from, from state and federal agencies, especially when they are about the places that we, that we live. Yeah. I think we're re- reading the report is great homework. So I'll echo that. I'm also interested in learning more about the uh, Law Enforcement Bill of Rights here in Maryland yes, um, and how that's changed maybe over the course of the last few years um, as they were sort of advocating that change in the documentary. Um, so, yeah, I encourage people to do the same in their own communities because you know, this one's particular to Maryland. Right. Um, but there's probably more across the country because um, Fraternal Order of Police push things like this. And so they get adopted across the country um, in different ways. Hi, everybody. I'm just jumping in here to let you know that the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights that I just talked about just now in the episode was actually repealed this week in Maryland. So Maryland was the first state to pass it in 1974 and is now the first state to repeal it. So it changes a lot in terms of police accountability and also makes the use of force policy one of the strictest in the nation. It's not everything that activists and organizers wanted to see in terms of changes to police accountability, but it does seem to be a step in the right direction. So let's take these wins when we can get them and celebrate the small things along the way. All right, Aaron, you're up next week, my friend. What are you bringing to the table in our next episode? So I'm going to bring a few different things. Um, I I mentioned that that bill that was proposed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis um, during our little application section. Um, so I'm I'm gonna actually we're gonna talk about that. Uh, All right. I'm gonna bring some articles and positions about that um, bill. Um, the first is from the ACLU, which is called uh, Governor DeSantis's anti-protest legislation is hostile, harmful, and fundamentally anti-democratic. 
Um, it's a long title from the ACLU. Um, and the second is an opinion piece published in the Orlando Sentinel by Patricia Brigham and Peggy Kinsey called Legislature's Anti-Protest Bill is Anti-American. Um, I'm also sure I'll, I'll find some more stuff along the way that we'll share as well and talk about, like, I'm sure that the Dream Defenders has some stuff published about oh. it. Um, so we'll, we'll maybe bring that up. I think finding the actual um, language mm-hmm. that they're going to adopt, um, we'll, we'll look at that too. Um, so, but yeah, that's the start. So, you know, overall the topic is let's talk about this anti-protest bill that um, Ron DeSantis wants to uh wants to have passed in uh, my home state of Florida. Yeah. All right. Very good. That's exciting and, and really certainly timely uh, mm-hmm. uh, and relevant. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. All right. With that, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. And as always, you know what we want you to do, but in case you forgot, please subscribe, leave a rating or review, uh, share our podcast with the people in your life, and of course, follow us on social media. Yes. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. And we'll talk to you next week. 